Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm James Wong Simpson, Investment Director for Tilney's London office. And today I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about the latest developments in investment markets. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry section in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, I feel with every podcast, your job's getting harder and harder as there's less clarity in the world. August has been a particularly difficult month for markets. What's been happening? Well, since we last spoke, markets have really switched to, to risk off mode. Several different factors impacting that yield curve, what's happening with US and China, uh, various other factors have really spooked markets. And it actually started at the very end of July. We had the, the final FOMC meeting um, of the, well, I guess not the first half, but the July FOMC meeting. And that was followed up very quickly with some, some trade war developments. And really that spooked markets. So equities fell. It's very classic risk off. Uh, UK equities were down around 7% from their July highs. Uh, the US was off 5% in China. So the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, that uh, index was actually down over 10% peak to trough uh, from July into August. So really at the epicenter, equities being hit and your classic risk off environment as equities fall, it's government bonds that rally. So that is yields fall. Actually, if you look in the US, so US interest rates are a big focus at the moment. 10-year US Treasury yields fell below 2%, so they're, they're down sort of one and a half, just below one and a half. If you look in Germany, 10-year bo- uh, bonds have got seriously unattractive, dropped even further into negative territory from minus 20 basis points down to minus 70. Very, very significant movements. And even in the UK, 10-year gilt yields down from uh, an already unattractive, particularly in real terms, 0.84 uh, time recording at 0.44%. So looking pretty unattractive at these levels, I'd say, if to, if you want to buy and hold them. There are some related points that perhaps we can talk about in the future, particularly we think about fiscal spending. It's something we've got ticking over in the back of our minds. One of the side effects, if you're a government, when you're borrowing at these very low rates, it makes it a lot easier to borrow and introduce fiscal stimulus. That might be something we see in the next few months. Um, Elsewhere, the currency's had a big movement as the Brexit outlook has hardened. Sterling fell further, particularly the end of July and the start of August. It has rebounded slightly. It got very close to the $1.20 mark, though, and that's what we've talked previously, being quite a stretched level. Now it's hovering just above that, that point, but clearly indicating a relatively hardened Brexit outlook. And in commodities, particularly given that the challenges in China, perhaps what you'd expect Gold continuing to rally. It broke through the $1,500 an ounce mark uh, in August, which is a very significant level. And against that, oil, as perhaps you understand, if you see challenges ahead, oil falling. Uh, Actually, Brent slumped below the $60 mark that's bounced back above that. So very much a classic risk-off month so far. And you mentioned the US. One of the big talking points as we've gone into this year is uh, around uh, yield curve inversion. Um, and a lot of people are saying this means recession, as this is an indicator which historically, going back the last 60 years, has a 100% success record for indicating a recession. Can you explain what it is and what it actually means? 
uh, I can certainly try. So the, the yield curve is simply the interest rates that are charged on government bonds at different maturities. Uh, so under normal circumstances, yields over longer t- periods tend to be higher simply because there is greater uncertainty um, from one point of view. There's also the, the timing of interest rates. So if you have low interest rates at the start of the cycle, as you expect those to increase and sort of plateau at a level, so when you're at the start of a recovery, the yield curve starts quite steep, it then tends to flatten out. But normally it's still positive just because you have greater uncertainty um, further out. So that's a positively sloping yield curve. It's very important for many parts of the economy. Inversion simply means that longer rates are, are lower than shorter rates. So effectively, it costs you less to invest or to borrow for 10 years than it does for one year. So that's what we mean by inversion. Um, and actually, the, the yield curve, particularly in the US, has been starting to get switched around a little bit for, for several months now. It has, up until now, been kinked. It's looked a bit like the Big Dipper. So medium rates have been lower. So your sort of three, four, five years have been lower. But your short rates, your ones and twos, and your longer rates, particularly the 10 years, have been higher. What's changed this time around um, is now the twos, tens. Uh, so that's the two-year rate versus the 10-year rate has inverted. And that's really the, the key signal. A lot of the, the research suggests that's the particular signal that indicates a recession is on its way. And there's several different reasons for that. The reason that a yield curve inverts tend to change over time, but ultimately it's a signal uh, that, that there's potentially trouble ahead. One often viewed signal is perhaps that if you think that rates in the future are going to be lower than today, maybe that means economic hardship is coming, so you're going to have to stimulate other times, uh, more traditionally, and this is perhaps relevant for some, uh, some of the nuance in the thinking, is what tends to kill off most economic cycles is the economy overheating, the Fed hiking rates to choke that, that growth off. And often, historically, you get the yield curve inverting because short rates have to be pushed higher and they, they end up above what is the long-term rate. And that's where you get that inversion. This time is, is actually quite different we have not had uh, a yield curve inversion when short rates, that is effectively the immediate rates if you look at central bank rates, you've never had short rates cut so much and still have a yield curve inversion. This is driven more by a very strong rally in the longer dated Treasury. So it's very unusual and perhaps suggests that this cycle has a little bit of nuance to it. Of course, it is still a signal. It is still a very strong um, indicator. And I think it's very dangerous to suggest entirely this time is different. And there's all sorts of reasons that ultimately it can lead to a recession. Part of it is likely to be self-fulfilling prophecies through sentiment channels. People expect a recession, so they behave as if there's a recession coming and that activity brings on the recession. There's also manifestations of the yield curve, though, particularly if you're a bank. Most banks Uh, tend to uh, lend long and borrow short. So if you're a bank, the way you function, you take all of your depositors, you pay them a relatively low savings rate of the short end, and you lend particularly things like mortgages at the long end at a higher rate, and you, you, you effectively make profit between the two. That trade is no longer profitable if your longer rates are below your shorter rates. So that can also mean you get a drying up of, of credit in the market. Um, so the yield curve has inverted. There are some nuances this time, particularly around though that movement in the short rates. Also, we see uh, other events, QE, quantitative easing we've talked about before. The fact that central banks all over the world are now buying up significant quantities of government bonds is likely to have had some sort of effect. 
not enough to, to cause a false signal necessarily, but certainly that pressure has meant that the yield curve more recently has been a less reliable indicator than it previously has been. Uh, and that's not to say that uh, the yield curve inversion is a signal that there's definitely a recession right now, head to the hills, right? I think when we talk in terms of the investment strategy, a lot of clients have been asking us, the yield curve's inverted, that's a recession, so I need to get out. And that is not necessarily the, the story that you should take away. And I think there's at least two different important factors, firstly on timing, and secondly, historically, what the response has been. Uh, and just in terms of timing, yes, you're right that the yield curve has effectively, for the, the 20th century, a 100% success record of predicting recessions. What the, the research also shows is the median time between the curve inverting and the recession is around 17 months, so a year and a half. And that's the median. There's quite a widespread either side. What's tended to bring it on quick, more quickly is when the Fed and central banks have basically done nothing and let markets uh, hit, uh, effectively hit the rocks unaided. What tends to lead them longer out to two or even three years is when central banks and the Fed have intervened, have reduced uh, interest rates, pre pre provided effectively monetary stimulus, try and encourage the market further. And at the moment, I think that's certainly what we're seeing from the Fed. Uh, so I think it is worth highlighting, just because this yield curve is inverted, it doesn't mean a recession is necessarily due in the short term. And I don't think, if you listen to the podcast before, I wouldn't say it's particularly ins insightful or new news to say we are certainly at a mature and late stage in the cycle. And a recession in the next few years is not completely out of the realms of possibility. And what that means for risk assets is a bit more nuanced. A lot of people assume recession means that equities fall, which is not always uh, entirely the case, particularly with the yield curve inversion. It depends on the time period. Pre-1980s, between the inversion and recession, equities have fallen a little bit. Actually, in the post-1980s environment, the 12 months after the yield curve inverted, actually equities have done pretty well and they've advanced ahead of trend and had this sort of melt-up character. So I think it is interesting. It's certainly a signal that we're not ignoring, but there are broader factors to consider and your investment strategy is not a default to sell your equities. If anything, there are environments you could see potentially melt up or you could see uh, other, other stresses pushing equity markets the other way. But in and of itself, this signal is not amazingly insightful for strategy, but it's certainly something we're paying close attention to. It's the other factors that are likely to drive investment returns. It's always very very dangerous to say this time it's different, but I do find it interesting this is the first occasion where the inversion has happened within 18 months of a general election in the US. Speaking of the US earlier on at the, uh, in the intro, you, you, you mentioned uh, the FOMC meeting. Federal Reserve cut interest rates last month, but that hasn't offered any reassurance to the market. Why not? I think as we've talked about previously, the market is in a very dovish mood. The market sees plenty of troubles out there. And what they want is extremely loose monetary policy. Uh, and the Federal Reserve in particular recognises there's a lag between its own policy and the reaction. So they're being a lot more cautious because if it takes them nine months for the effects to come through, that's why they talk about data dependency. Everything they do is gradual. And as we've highlighted before, the Fed remains extremely reluctant to cut as much as the markets are pricing in. So the market already assumed a 100% chance of at least one cut and possibly a double cut in the event they got a single cut and even the, the Fed chair Jerome Powell was not as dovish as they'd hoped in his commentary. He highlighted that the cut shouldn't be seen as part of an extended uh, cycle of cuts, 
highlighted the data dependency and that wasn't really what the market was hoping for. This effective insurance cut that we have highlighted before is what they got um, and it's not what they wanted. And really the Fed is currently in quite a tough situation. Yes, inflation is relatively soft, but not as soft as it has been earlier in the cycle. It limits their scope potentially to move. They're also getting quite a lot of political fire that the independence of the central bank is being threatened by by Donald Trump. A lot of tweets effectively demanding softer monetary policy. It even triggered um, the ex-New York Fed president Dudley to write a Bloomberg opinion piece effectively saying that the the Federal Reserve should not enable Trump in terms of a trade war and even uh, sort of implied a a threat that the Fed would help Donald Trump get re-elected next year. That prompted then uh, a response from the Fed to say that it's completely apolitical. But I think it does highlight the pressure that the Federal Reserve is under and it has to react to real world environments. That's as we see the Fed is continually defensive, trying to have gradual cuts, and then you have trade war escalating, and then they're forced to, to react to that. And it's quite a, a difficult uh, a difficult dichotomy uh, in terms of the signals for the Fed to be reacting to. Speaking of the US-China trade war, there continue to be develop, developments, uh, and there continue to be leaks from either side. How is this affecting markets, and where are we now? So straight after the Fed meeting we, we just talked about, uh, Donald Trump immediately announced another tariff, effectively 10% on what are, really amounts to the remaining outstanding um, imports from, from China. You could argue whether or not the timing of that for after the FOMC meeting to apply yet further pressure was, was planned. But effectively, tariffs are, have now been announced on pretty much all exports uh, from China to the US. So an expansion of the tariff war. In response, China's retaliated by allowing its currency to de- depreciate. We've highlighted before the risk of this broadening out into a currency war seems to be where we are now. So uh, China allowed the currency to weaken so that now uh, the dollar buys over seven renminbi to the dollar. The the seven renminbi level is a particularly psychologically important level. Economically, materially, it doesn't really mean anything, but it's been a level that historically has been managed to, and breaking through that level is seen as a very clear signal. It's triggered the US to, to label China as a currency manipulator. And then in response to that response, Uh, The US has announced an extension to the tariffs. So everything that was going to be at 10% has gone up to 15% and everything that was at 25% is slated to go up to 30%. So very much at this stage, tit for tat. That said, there are a couple of more nuances that's worth highlighting. And I think there are still, I mean, I know that the argument is wearing thin, but there is still a way through and this expectation that both the China, China and the US are trying to leave the way forward for some sort of deal that ultimately there are sensible people in both administrations that know some sort of deal is the right way forward, particularly if we are if we are late stage. And I think what is particularly interesting, if you take China, they've allowed the currency to depreciate, but they are also keen to be seen as a responsible member of the global economy. They would like to see more and more global participants using their currency as a trade currency. And you can't do that if you're seen to be being irresponsible and aggressively manipulating your currency. So it's not in China's interest actually to do too much more. It's interesting they've allowed it to move a little bit, but not enough it's likely to have material impacts. And on the US side, almost as soon as the tariffs were announced, a few days after, the the president already announced delays to their implementation. 
some in the next few weeks, some though don't kick in until December. And part of that is to allow US retailers to stockpile ahead of Christmas. And what's important about this, this represents a change in some of the imports being targeted. Historically, a lot of them have been targeted at uh, effectively business capex that businesses are expected to take on the chin. And as we've highlighted before, extending out to all import, all imports from China is going to start hitting the consumer. So I think really this is highlighting the fringe where this trade war starts extending out from businesses to consumers. Consumers are the electorate. And I think it's, it's just highlighting how difficult it is to do much more with tariffs at this stage. So, so plenty to watch out for, um, lots of tit for tat, but also there is still this way forward to some sort of deal uh, that I wouldn't entirely discount, particularly when everyone is focusing more on the escalation. And finally, we, we, we've, we've done our best to avoid it up until now, but I have to ask you questions about the UK. Um, you mentioned in the last episode podcast about the balance of probabilities between a change in government. How's that balance shifted in the last few days? Um, so at the end of July, we had the, the hardening outlook for Brexit. Obviously, uh, the, the Tory government under Boris Johnson has talked a much harder game and has acted to close off many avenues that some of the anti-no dealers have been trying. And more recently, this announcement effectively uh, an effective prorogation of uh, Parliament. And that's really setting the government against this coalition or form of coalition, I guess, of the anti-no-deal group, which is also itself a disparate entity. So it has set the stage for a standoff between them. Um, I would say in the cold light of day, I don't think the chance of a change of government has actually changed significantly. I think the magnitude of the risks on both sides has escalated. There's probably a greater chance than than last month of uh, a hard no-deal uh, exit. I don't think. I, I certainly wouldn't say that's the base case. There is still the the expectation that uh, the Boris Johnson government wants some sort of deal and is playing effectively uh, hardball, which is understandable in terms of negotiation. And if you look at where sterling is, it has bounced off that one dollar twenty level. It is now slightly north of that. That implies a sort of uh, a slightly softer outlook. I don't think that the calculus in uh, in terms of government necessarily. Res- supports another general election. I think both sides still recognise the extreme danger. There is potentially the argument that by campaigning so hard for an election outcome, they may well be be trying to dissuade the other side from forcing a general election. Because certainly the Boris Johnson government doesn't want to what doesn't want to, to go. They're trying to give the impression that if they were to go, A, they might get more of a landslide taking the Brexiteer vote but also they have the ability to force through a no-deal Brexit. So it could almost be, ironically, perhaps a little bit of the element that happened at the EU referendum. Both sides are arguing so much for an outcome to try and avoid uh, the potential of a general election. So maybe the balance of probability is undulating. If you read the press more towards a general election, I don't think the actual balance of probability has changed necessarily in the last month. And finally, a little bit of good news out of Europe. Uh, you mentioned earlier on the ability of governments to enact fiscal policy. Um, what's very interesting is when we look at the sort of sick man of Europe of Italy, their 10-year yields have come down from three down to below 1% yesterday. Um, on a two trillion of debt that Italy has, that's 50 billion of savings a year. And that's 50 billion the government can spend effectively free. What's going on there? Well, Italy 
as you rightly say, has a huge amount of debt. And, and really, it's the peripheral nation that if it goes south could drag down the rest of Europe. Some of the other uh, countries with challenges, if they really went to the wall, could potentially be bailed out by the rest of Europe. Not so with Italy, which is why everyone pays a lot more attention to what is going on there. And what we've seen is the the coalition between the League and the Five Star Movement has collapsed. The League hoped to bring down the entire government, force elections uh, and come in with a landslide. But as we've found time and time again, the best laid plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. The Prime Minister has, uh, has resigned. Now the outlook, though, is that the Prime Minister may well come back with a different coalition that could well see the League left out in the cold. There's the potential that the Five Star Movement uh, could join with a Democratic Party, which would be form a more moderate, um, slightly left-leaning coalition. And the reason that markets are are happy, that would be a much more market-friendly outcome. The policies of the Democratic Party, admittedly moderated and offset by the Five Star Movement, would be a lot more market-friendly. So that's that's sort of the outlook. The the extreme left and extreme right coalition is effectively out and there's the potential for some of the more populist policies to be sidelined and a more sensible government to, to come back in. Of course, it is still a live debate. Uh, at the time of recording, uh, the president has given Conti a mandate to form this coalition, but anything could change um, between now and the next podcast or even between recording and it going out. So it's a very live situation. Certainly it's not heading the way that the league expected and it is looking relatively positive from a market perspective for Europe overall. Little bonus at the end of the podcast is a listener question that wasn't covered during the podcast was around portfolio positioning. The listener asks, while some markets are expensive and others are fair value, I wonder what practical changes make sense for portfolios. In particular, hedge funds seem to be out of favour as they didn't perform at the end of last year when perhaps they should have done. Bonds are very expensive and seem to have been high risk for several years now, leaving cash and gold as possible alternatives. However, holding cash within a portfolio is expensive, so perhaps it's best to be kept kept at least inflation matching deposits, leaving only gold as a sensible alternative. Well, thank you very much for the question. Uh, and I think it really gets to the, the crux of the challenge that we're facing at the moment. One side effect of extraordinary monetary policy from central banks, QE is pushed up asset prices, interest rates have been pushed to very low levels. Functionally, that means it is extremely difficult, I would say impossible, to achieve a, a real, so after the effects of inflation, a real return in a risk-free asset. And that's the environment that we find ourselves in. Um, I think from a strategic point of view, to me, equities look like the only asset class with a meaningful ability to generate significant real returns over the long term, but obviously they are a high-risk asset class. So against that, I think it can make sense to take a barbell approach. As the listener highlights, core fixed income looks very unattractive. If you buy a 10-year government bond right now, and if we have 2% inflation and just hold it to maturity, all you're likely to do is lose money after the effects of inflation. So I think really it's about thinking how do you barbell, what do you offset those that equity risk with Within fixed income, actually, it's not just about buying government bonds. One option and an area that in the managed programs I've been using quite significantly recently is short-dated corporate bonds. So those are bonds maturing typically in the next sort of three to five years. So they're not as exposed to the change in interest rates because longer bonds tend to be more sensitive. Instead, you get paid a small premium for taking the risk of investing in, in corporate debt. So there you can achieve often a return that is slightly above inflation. So trying to maintain that in those terms. 
Um, there are some absolute return vehicles that have the potential to generate the return, but as the listener highlights, they have had a difficult time. So certainly those returns are can be quite variable. And even with gold, gold is, is very volatile. Um, and at the moment, the problem is gold uh, as a risk-off asset is not an unknown story. And given the geopolitical risks, that price has been pushed up quite significantly from around 1200 um, a little while ago up to around 1500 now. So a lot of the bad news is already in that asset class. So ultimately, I think it's about taking your position in equity and then considering how to barbell that. More recently in the central programs, I have just been holding it in tactical cash uh, until I can see a more attractive entry point in some other asset classes. Short dated fixed income as well might give you a bit more of a return without as much interest rate sensitivity. Thank you, Ben, for your comments. We'll be back again next month with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thank you for listening.